Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly Games Club podcast discussing the worlds and workings of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Kalecki. And this month we're talking about Undertale. Uh, developed and released by Toby Fox in 2015, I feel extra important for us to mention right up front we're going to be talking a lot of spoilers, and this game is particularly susceptible to them. So, if you're sensitive to that, go play this game. It'll take five to seven hours, and I guarantee you won't regret it. So, Undertale, the game that launched a thousand Tumblr feeds. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is a game that was developed entirely by pretty much one guy. He took some help with art from a few friends, but... Uh, by and large, this is sort of an auteur game by Toby Fox, who uh, at the time of the release was only 23. So this is really sort of a, a gaming development wonderkind project here. Oh, for sure. And one of the things about it is it also kind of reminds me of that older school indie game where you had graphics that weren't great, but the games had a lot of charm, a lot of uh, character to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's almost impossible to mention this game without um, recognizing that its roots are uh, heavily influenced by Earthbound, the SNES classic. Definitely a, a different feel to this game than, than Earthbound, given that was sort of based in Americana, and this is more uh, based in a much more fantastical thing. But I think all, like you said, the charm, the character, the humor, especially in the writing is there. You know, to have jump off of that for just a minute. I think uh, one of the things about the game is that instead of being based in Americana, it's kind of based in video games as its cultural Malo. And that's kind of where it takes the weirdness of Earthbound instead of being in general American culture, just with video games in particular. Yeah, that's a really good point because uh, this is an, a game that is both influenced and part of a gigantic fandom you know it's influenced by fandom but it also spawned a magnificently huge fandom this is probably the most popular indie game that's not called minecraft uh its online presence fan tributes etc basically took over twitter and the tumblr sphere for a solid few months back in late 2015 early 2016 uh, where at one point this game started climbing up the ranks on the likes of Metacritic and Game FAQs as the best game of all time, quote unquote. So this game had some really interesting heat when it first came out, and uh, as such, also had a lot of uh, backlash. With any rabid online presence comes, you know, backlash. Comes the counter movement. So what is this game about? Well, you're a human child who fell down a hole, and now you're in a world of monsters. Scary. You just want to get home. You are determined to get there yeah notice the emphasis on that word determined because uh, determination and that word is a theme that's going to be repeated a lot uh, throughout the course of this discussion sort of a central pivotal point of you know what makes you as the player character special and it's a relatively simple setup right i mean this is something we've seen in in games a hundred times i mean this is basically the narnia formula so yeah, I mean, I guess if we're going right into it and talking about like what this game plays like beat by beat, um, generally speaking, you're, uh, you know, you control an avatar walking around a world running into charming and uh, well-written little pixel characters uh, a la SNES, and the tone of the game sort of ricochets rapidly between 
take this seriously and then immediately cuts itself down with, but not too seriously. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, we'll rivet you with a joke or two uh, just when things are getting a little too dire. I think the humor in this game is definitely something that uh, can't be undersold here. Uh, there, Even though this is maybe my fourth or fifth time through the game, um, I still laughed out loud at some of the jokes, just little one-off grace notes that I didn't remember about the uh, first time through, but there are times I laughed out loud. I LOL'd, but the real version, um, <laughs> when I was playing this game, even on the fifth time through. Yeah, it is It is definitely one of those uh, things about the game that, and sadly, is still very rare in games today, right, where writing seems to be a bit undervalued. This game has an absolutely magnificent script in terms of the, you know, the writing you encounter. Basically, every NPC is the best NPC in uh, a classic JRPG or Earthbound Town, you know? You always get that one NPC that says something funny or insightful, but that's just every NPC in this game. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Definitely a good sense of humor. Uh, so you're going through the game, and you start off in the ruins. Uh, right off the bat, you fall down a cliff, you go in through a dark door, and this friendly little flower pops up to say hello and explain to you the battle mechanics. Um, he tells you to take his friendliness pellets, because that's how you get more XP. Um, and, you know, you want to get that XP, you being the good gamer that you are. So you run into the friendliness pellets, which turn out to be bullets, and it turns out the flower is trying to kill you, and he almost succeeds until Toriel, a.k.a. Goat Mom, comes to save you. That's right. You're introduced to sort of your first um, friendly NPC here, right after your first uh, main antagonist, and... Uh, the the theme right off the bat is the dichotomy between these two characters, basically. Um, Kill or be killed, says Flowey, and then Toriel immediately comes in and um, saves your butt by roasting him. Um, Not exactly like a super cohesive thing from her immediately sort of dispatching this enemy, whereas you do not get to dispatch anyone throughout the course of the game if you play it uh, in a pacifist style. Yes, there are three main routes you can take the game. Um, you can take it where you don't kill anything at all, you can take it where you kill some of the things, and you can take it where you kill absolutely everything. Uh, the game is very explicit in what it thinks about each of those over there. It judges you. Even though Sans says he won't, he lies. Yeah, it's very... Uh... It's a good point, and it's worth mentioning here that this game is kind of sold as a a kindness or friendship RPG. Where no one has to die. That's the tagline. That's right. The RPG where no one has to get hurt or die or whatever the tagline was. You know, as as interesting and effective this was throughout the course of the the game, uh, it does sort of undercut itself in a few places that, you know, we'll get to that uh, as we discuss the game, but overall those three main paths will determine your endings and by and large what type of story you see so you go through the ruins and your um goat mom is leading you around and solving puzzles for you because she doesn't want to overwhelm you with too much all at once um and you come across the save points um which like any rpg has save points and i think this is a good example of the serious but not too serious tone i think the first save point you come across you save your game and it says something like the mysterious air of the ruins surround you. You're filled with determination and you're like, oh, that sounds epic. But then the next one is not at the entrance to the ruins, but 
in a pile of leaves and you go and say the game and it says the crinkling of the dead leaves around you fills you with determination and it's just like it goes from being very epic to very kind of mock epic almost a kind of bathos kind of feeling toriel eventually leads us through the ruins to uh her home and this home it is very clear uh is where she expects you to stay there's already a bed made up for you she's talking about uh you know homeschooling you basically uh it starts to immediately feel a little weird and you realize you gotta go yep so you go down to the basement and or you follow her down to the basement where she is trying to destroy the one door out of the ruins the one door that would lead you on your path home um and you and her fight because she wants you to prove that you're strong enough to survive on your own um and at least for me the first time i played this game I went through the fight and I killed Toriel. Um, I don't know about you. I did too, and I think this is probably one of the main portions where I think the game does a poor job communicating that every conflict has a peaceful resolution. This is a little bit too early for me for them to be withholding so much information in terms of how you're supposed to surpass this fight. Now, you know, I think they did that, or that uh, Toby did that on purpose over there. Um, I think it kind of leads to its message being more effective, uh, that you're—we'll get into this a little bit later, but I would say that it's your video game mindset of coming in here and, here's an obstacle, what am I going to do? I'm going to kill it. Uh, <laughs> that is kind of the enemy here and not Goat Mom. Yeah, which begs the question, like, if that's your first reaction, man, maybe we got to examine that. <laughs> which, as it turns out, the game does do. Did you ever see a genocide run? Have you ever watched a playthrough? I watched chunks of it and specifically watched the ending uh, portion that you sent me with the Sans fight, which, of course, most people will come across due to the music in it being pretty epic. But, um, yeah, I watched chunks of it, and it is dire. Like, I, I know that I would not make it through that just, one, because of the sheer, you know, depressingness, but two, because it seems mechanically boring as well. Yeah, maybe, maybe. We could, well, we'll get a little more into that later, but for now, we're fighting Toriel. Both of us were fighting her for real the first time. The next couple of times I fought her and I was doing a pacifist run, I noticed that she doesn't actually kill you. If, you're good, if your health gets too low, she will attack the area around you instead of where you are right now and i don't think you can actually get her to kill you she refuses to do so that's right the she has like a fire spell and it's worth mentioning how the combat works in this game since we're talking about our first big fight and uh basically you're on a a sort of black field and you're represented by a little heart which is your soul and you basically move that heart around in order to dodge enemy projectiles and toriel's projectiles in this fight uh actually start to dodge you near the end when your health is getting low uh sort of indicating to you that she her heart's not in it in terms of uh putting you down successfully getting her to uh, 
allow you to pass, you emerge into the snowfields and are immediately uh, beginning to beginning to be stalked by uh, two skeletons, the first of which you meet being Sans. There's uh, these two skeleton brothers are sent out here to uh, capture humans. Uh, Papyrus, the other brother, is very much into this. And Sans, he's just kind of a laid-back guy, likes making puns. He doesn't really care about capturing you. Uh, he recognizes you as a human right away, whereas Papyrus needs a couple of uh, pointers from his brother that, yes, you are a human. <laughs> yeah, um, it's definitely played as like Papyrus being the high-strung uh, comedic effect person and Sans sort of being the laid-back straight man. Um, and it's clear that Sans is much more competent than Papyrus as well, which makes this extra funny that given that he doesn't really care about your presence in the snowy fields. Um, Papyrus, on the other hand, leads you through an increasingly elaborate set of puzzles, which he just thinks are the most devious thing in the world, but they turn out to be incredibly simple JRPG, you know, block pushing and switch hitting puzzles, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah, there's uh, definitely some good jokes in there. You get a, a sense of the brother's personality right away. Uh, worth mentioning is that Sans and Papyrus, um, they are two characters who have unique fonts for themselves. Um, I think everybody else speaks with a standard font, but Sans is, of course, Comic Sans, but a tch, and then Papyrus is um, the Papyrus font as well, or at least translated to a pixelated version thereof. Yeah. <laughs> There's a story behind why Toby Fox chose those two and represented them that way. And I think it was just because one of his buddies like really hated those fonts and thought they were just like terribly uh, aesthetically awful. And so he was like, all right, well, let's lean into this and <laughs> bug my buddy, which I thought was pretty good. Um, it's, I think uh, it's worth for me mentioning that the Snowden theme, the musical theme just chills me right out. Like it is such a good well-crafted little song and i can't believe we haven't mentioned this yet but toby fox is primarily a composer and it shows in this game is he primarily a composer i mean he's a great composer for sure yeah he he is a composer before he is a game developer like he's got his start apparently um writing music for uh, other folks plugins for earthbound and games and eventually got into designing them himself and another thing that i was uh, made aware of at some point, either read or listened to or something about this game, is that all of the music was written before the scenes around them were built. Hmm. So, yeah, which, you know, also shows because the music in this game just fits each and every scene that it's associated with incredibly well. And while it is a a thematic score with a motif that runs through it, which we'll, we'll talk more in depth about later... Um, it's adapted so perfectly to each of the styles and each of the environments it's in. And for Snowden, that comes in the form of a twinkling piano uh, tune that just, like I said, chills me right the fuck out. That's a great song. Thank you. 
one of the things coming from that music, uh, kind of nice segue towards Snowden as being a kind of the area where the game starts first starts to assert itself and what its message is. I mean, you can think about going through the ruins where you're in your typical JRPG kind of thing. There's a battle screen and. You know, you go to the battle screen, you do what you do at a battle screen. I, I remember one part where Goat Mom takes you to a training dummy, and she goes through her own little introduction to the battle system. Except this is to tell you how to, like, talk to people instead of fighting them, or if they want to fight you. And when you're threatened, strike up a friendly conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking, well, if I'm in a battle screen right now, I'm going to punch the dummy instead, which is what I did at the time. Um <laughs> but you go through the ruins and you're fighting the monsters. They're fighting you back. And this is just kind of stock RPG stuff at this time. Stuff you've seen a hundred times before. But Snowden, you know, it has its happy music going on. It has these interesting characters you're meeting, but also the enemies you're fighting. The one part I really thought kind of changed the game for me um, was when you fight the greater dog. It's this hilarious dog in a giant suit of armor who just wants to play with you and be pet by you and all these really cute dog things and um it kind of communicates to the player like okay this is different you're in a battle screen but fighting is not the point of it here you should play with the dogs instead yeah all of these dog based enemies in the first area i think that's that definitely seemed to me to be a an on-purpose thing to sort of say, all right, well, what kind of heartless person would start putting down a bunch of dogs? So <laughs> it very clearly wants you to realize, like, these are just over-enthusiastic, curious creatures, and you're new in their space. So maybe you should try the peaceful option first, right? <laughs> right? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but you get through the town, or you get to the, t- uh, the snowy fields, and you get to the town of Snowden. And there you meet Papyrus, who finally realizes that you are human. He wants to be your friend, but he also wants the fame and recognition that capturing a human would get. So you and him fight. And this is one of the first times you realize that there are different mechanics to the bullet hell than you've typically been accustomed to. And this one, you turn from a red heart, which is your normal heart, into a blue heart, which is kind of like a more platforming type of heart. They do this with the bosses later on. Each boss has a sort of special twist on the mechanics that you deal with when you're with them. Yeah, it's pretty cool how they, like, suddenly layer in a new... Um, mechanic for a fight and they sort of diegetically justify it in terms of, you know, here's my special attack and um, it's also pretty cool to me that they immediately switch the musical theme once this happens as well Mm -hmm. Um, sort of showing you that uh, the battle has changed or that the terms of the battle have changed and now this is serious course it doesn't end up being serious if you continue on with your uh 
uh, peaceful resolution mode because uh, at the end of this fight, what you're really trying to do to win Papyrus over and uh, put end this battle peacefully is to get him to realize that you're flirting with him and admire him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to say one more thing about the Papyrus fight, too, before we go on to the Papyrus date, um, is that Sans, the smart skeleton, has been telling you about how pretty much harmless his brother is against you. And the first couple of attacks that Papyrus throws again out at you, um, instead of being like a bullet hell thing, there's just this tiny bone that goes across the bottom that you have to actually run into if you want it to hurt you. It won't do any damage to you. Um, he does the same attack once you're in the platforming mode, and then it becomes something you actually have to dodge. But the effect of it is, for the first couple of rounds, you're like, oh, this guy's a pushover. He's, he's not doing anything. There's nothing I got to do here, nothing to worry about. Which, again, reinforces that kind of, hey, let's, uh, let's not fight people. Let's talk it out. Let's strike up a friendly conversation instead. Goat Mom was wise. And this is this is an interesting way that the mechanics are balanced in this game, too, that I want to point out, in that if you are going through this game and have killed a monster or are continuously killing them, your character is, you know, gaining HP and ability to do damage. But if you're not, you're basically at level one for this entire game. You know, you're stuck with that base 20 hit points, and the only thing you're mechanically getting more proficient at is taking hits. You're getting higher defense if you find some equipment. So the game does sort of pull punches for you if you take those peaceful options, because let's be honest, if it didn't, you'd be screwed. I don't know. I feel like it was much harder going through the game in the pacifist route than the neutral route, where you do have some more hit points and other means to soak up some of the attacks the characters are throwing up against you. I agree, but you are you're not seeing the worst of the worst in the 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 pacifist run. No, the genocide route has the toughest fights, but it really only has two fights in it. So yeah, um, once we get through fighting uh, Papyrus and you know realizing that he's just insecure about making friends and rising through the ranks, uh, he you know takes that, goes home, and uh, if you want, at that point, you can go and hang out with him. Which basically, <laughs> <laughs> do we want to talk about the dating mechanics here? Because this is probably the most hilarious part of the game to me. <laughs> yeah, I'd say let's go for it. All right, so immediately you get back to um, Papyrus's house back in Snowden, Papyrus and, and Sans' house, and Sans is nowhere to be found. But um, you go through an increasingly awkward bit of conversation around his apartment, and eventually you start a dating HUD where you used to have your sort of fighting HUD, and all of these ridiculous items come up like tension attraction crime (laughs) and there's like (laughs) all of these ridiculous things appearing on the hud and you basically go through it have a conversation and he realizes that you're just too attracted to him like he can't possibly reciprocate and so you know you both just sort of back off no one gets hurt leave it be and go on with your merry way (laughs) he makes a comment about that too i think at the end of the day when he's like i don't really want to date you but I'm glad we can be such good friends afterwards. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of how all, you know, spoiler alert, but we'll get to this later anyway. That's pretty much how all of the relationships, quote unquote, in this game resolve. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's the pacifist ending. It wouldn't be right if someone actually got hurt. <laughs> that's right. That's right.
anyway, uh, continuing on after the Snowden area, we continue on into um, the waterfall area of the game, and uh, a large tonal shift occurs. This area is much more quiet, less less happy, more mysterious. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are also being pursued by a much more serious foe in this part. This is where Undyne makes her appearance. She is a fish lady, a member of the Royal Guard, uh, and she is definitely out to capture and or kill you. Yeah, she is immediately set up as being like hyper-competent super warrior woman and her fish woman. And her stalking you throughout this area with the stomping armor and her sort of theme of menace is pretty intimidating Mm -hmm. especially coming from snowden in the snowy fields where you're playing with dogs and dating skeletons yeah it's it's a big tonal shift and the game also starts leaning a little bit more into its uh, backstory and lore Uh, there's a little story building mechanic here where there's plants that repeat the last thing that was heard nearby and so you get snippets of npc dialogue from these plants even though you're totally alone and you're seeing plaques on the wall in this area depicting the history of the underground Mm -hmm. and these plaques start setting up this fight between you and asgore as this is a thing that has to happen uh this has to it has to end uh a battle between you and him one of you needs to kill the other one and get their soul in order for either one of you to escape the underground uh, so it's definitely started to set up the final battle. Yeah, I think it's pretty elegant how they give both the historical and societal context on how this works. Like at the, in the same area where you're seeing the plaque that you and Asgore, you and the, the humans and the monsters are destined to battle, you're getting a uh, snippet of dialogue from a passing NPC about what a, a sweetheart Asgore, the king of the monsters, actually is. I think at this point, they don't mention Asgore is the king of the monsters. They talk about um, the king Dreamer, uh, who's a really nice person. I think uh, it's not till maybe Alphys or Metaton later on that you learn that they're one and the same person. Asgore is only whispered about, like, in Toriel's dying breath, she's like, Asgore will kill you. So it's very ominous over there, but in the... For the meantime, they just kind of set them up as two separate things. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely interesting. And they there's an air of mystery about this area. Like you're getting some of the pieces of the puzzle, but not all of them. And, you know, it sort of culminates with um, a confrontation between you and Undyne after she basically casts you into the depths below at the bottom of the waterfall where you you meet a friendly ghost which is a fun little aside and he's actually one of my favorite characters too yeah uh napstablock uh this is you first see him in the ruins where um that's kind of funny actually this is another way they kind of show that the usual mechanics maybe not are in play right now if you try to kill the ghost over there at the end once his hp reaches zero he's like so um, this is kind of awkward. He's a very awkward character, but he says, this is kind of awkward, but you know you can't really kill ghosts, right? I've just been lowering my HP to be polite. And then he just kind of floats <laughs> away. Yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, this, this character is also sort of a, I, I think it's meant to be a commentary on depression, honestly, because like throughout the fight, he'll like start to make an attack and then just say, I'm just not feeling up to it. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
And yeah, he's actually a pretty endearing character. And uh, it's, you know, after the fight, you can go and hang out with him at his ghost house and listen to music in the dark. So Undyne's chasing you out throughout the waterfall, and you eventually do fight her. Um, there's a very epic moment. She's a very kind of like anime-obsessed character. Yeah, actually, uh, Und- actually, Undyne is not the anime-obsessed one. It's Alphys who's the anime-obsessed one. Undyne is actually just anime. <laughs> She's anime as hell. Like, the music behind her fight, the, like... I'm going to kill you with my spear intensity. Like, she is totally anime. This whole She's very anime, anime. But, like, Alphys knows that those are just comic books. And later on, Undyne refers to it as human history books. That's a good point. I forgot about that detail where she's been exposed to the anime as human history. <laughs> and then Alphys tries to tell her that it's all fake. And she, like, turns to you and she's like, tell me it's real. <laughs> I need to know. Uh, the entire fight with Undyne in this section of the game is like about as epic as this game's combat system allows for. You're uh, moving your cursor around rapidly to deflect incoming spear blows with a little shield. It's uh, it's the closest this game gets to like sort of reaction rhythm defense button mashing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, it's... It's definitely a very epic fight. Um, I'd say, well, there's a lot of epic fights in this game, but this is the first real epic fight you have. The first mm-hmm. one against Toriel is kind of bittersweet. The boss fight against Papyrus is more comical. funny than co- it's more comical, <laughs> and this is like someone who's actually going after you. So it is a more serious fight for sure. Yeah, and it, it ends with you actually being unable to straight up overcome or convince her. Like, as determined as you are, and your determination has been touted throughout this entire thing, you are unable to convince her that you are not a threat. And so, you just have to run to end this fight peacefully. Yep, if you're ending the fight peacefully, you run away, and she chases you, and you keep running away until you run all the way to Hotland. Where, as you might imagine, it's pretty hot. Undyne overheats in her armor, and you can make friends with her by bringing her a glass of water after she's tried to kill you. That's right. It's uh, it's one of those things where you kill them with kindness. Mm-hmm. At that point, she doesn't believe your shtick so much still, but she's a little more confused, and she lets you go for that point. And at that, then you enter the lab. That's right. So at this point, you're introduced to the character Alphys, and uh, pretty shortly after there, Alphys being the royal scientist, you are introduced to her creation, Metaton, who is a entertainment robot? That's been reprogrammed to kill all humans? 
Yeah, it's it's very bizarre, but basically it's a robot talk show host who's also responsible and therefore been reprogrammed for destroying humans with missiles. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> so Metaton busts in and immediately launches into a game show. quiz show and i just found this out that um that alphys actually gives you the answers to this she makes little little hand signals and the shape of whatever answer it's supposed to be uh the answers start off um like fair like typical quiz show questions you'd see in like banjo kazooie or something like that like what's the full name of this character or what's that or and later on they get to increasingly unfair things like um it shows you a picture of a monster, and it asks, what monster is this? It turns out it's Metaton wearing a t-shirt with that monster's face. Or it asks you, how many flies are in this jar? And there's something like 37 of them buzzing around, and you have a few seconds to answer. Um, yeah, the answer is being 37, 38, and 39, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, not fair questions. Um, but eventually, Alphys blurts out starts blurting out answers for you because she's super geeked about a anime show he asked a question about and she wanted to tell everyone about it um and at that point metaton cancels the quiz show and says i'll see you guys later that's right so and if this sounds like lol random to you it is absolutely that like this whole area sort of you know, continues to do what I had talked about earlier, ricochet back and forth between like sort of intense traversal puzzles um, and very serious like hotland area music, basically being like industrial techno kind of. Uh, Yeah, intercut with these scenes where Metaton is putting you through a cooking show, a news segment where you're diffusing bombs, uh, and even an opera parody that's clearly influenced by Final Fantasy VI. (laughs) Yeah, uh, very true, very true. As important during all of these shows and uh, traps that Metaton is setting for you is that Alphys is always showing up in the nick of time to save the day. And I think after the opera one, where I really like this, they reintroduce a puzzle that Papyrus showed earlier with some random tiles. And this time it was an actual puzzle instead of the piece of cake walkthrough kind of thing Papyrus gave you. Um, and you don't, you, I think you can finish it. Uh, you can actually get through that puzzle I've seen. Really? I, I've definitely always failed it. <laughs> yeah, it's not not hard to. But in either way, Metaton's like, oh, joke's on you. The puzzle didn't matter. Your time's up. And um, the wall, the curtains of flame start descending on you, and they get really close, and Metaton, uh, like, they pause, and Metaton starts coughing really loudly. Uh, and then Alphys comes in and she's like, oh, wait a second. Sorry, guys, I got distracted. Here, I'm turning off the uh, firewalls now. I'm hacking things. <laughs> yeah, so it, at this point, it's basically revealed that Alphys, or at least you're probably realizing that this is all sort of a, a ploy by Alphys, and there's no actual danger here for you. She's just trying to get you to like her. Yep, she's pretty insecure about that. Um for, for a number of reasons we can get into a little more later. But eventually you go from Hotland into the core. And this is where things start getting a little more serious. Because Alphys is telling you to do one thing, which turns out to be the very wrong thing to do. Like, things aren't going according to plan. 
I want to, um, before we go into the final confrontation in the core, uh, there's a brief interlude where you're at the MTT Hotel, Metatons Hotel, and <laughs> you meet up You meet up with Sans for a quick drink, and he starts to slyly reveal that he knows that something is amiss with the way that you're navigating the world. By now, you've undoubtedly died or been dispatched by your foes at least once, and he somehow seems to hint that he knows this and that you're able to manipulate things. He does. He's he's a very good reader of facial expressions, Sans. He can tell some <laughs> vast subtleties in there. Uh, but yeah, you go through the hotel, you meet some hilarious people in there. Burger Face is one of my, or Burger Pants is one of my favorite characters. He's a guy working inside a Burger King knockoff. Uh, it's called like the Metaton Burger or the MTT Burger or something like that, where you can uh, you can buy a steak in the shape of Metaton's face because he's just that awesome. So throughout this whole thing, you know, Metaton is is sort of the theme here where like our continued pursuit by Undyne was the, the sort of overarching theme of the waterfall. Pursuit and dispatching of Metaton and continuous meetups with him and his influence over this space is just clearly felt throughout the entirety of your time in Hotland and the core. As you mentioned before, we are heading into the core and confront uh, Metaton uh, for a final bout. Yep, you go through the battle. He reveals a new body that's very glamorous. And I think the theme song is actually David called... David Bowie. Um, <laughs> what? It's very David it's... Bowie, yeah. Very, yeah, very glam. Very glam rock. Um, but the theme song is actually called Death by Glamour, if I remember right, during that. And what a good theme song that is. Oh, yeah, it's, a, it's such a jam. But you either beat Metaton or you, um, you, you, he's televising the entire battle because of course, and you eat enough Metaton-faced steaks or, um, do enough cool things in battle, you make it epic enough that the ratings get high enough that he's like, oh, this is fantastic, I don't care about fighting you anymore because my ratings are so great. This, to me, like, seemed like a WWE-type thing, like, you're basically trying to pump up the ratings, quote unquote, by doing things like do a heel turn, and then like you get more points if you get hit, or <laughs> do a uh, like stand proud and like taunt him, and you get more points if you don't get hit that turn. 
like basically you're trying to pump the ratings by do all these things and, and like you said josh you can also just uh put on or utilize a bunch of metaton branded things to pump your ratings as well <laughs> you know they uh mention all those different ways to boost the ratings beforehand uh they're maybe not explicit about it but like um I remember talking to some NPCs, maybe in the hotel, where they're like, "My favorite part of uh, my favorite part of watching Metaton is watching the part where he he kicks the heel turning villain, even if it wow. is during a newscast." I never caught on to that. Like, I never caught on that they were explaining the mechanics of what you do in that fight because that fight always seemed so impenetrable to me. And getting the re- like. One, realizing the ratings getting to 10,000 is the key to winning it peacefully is a leap in itself. But understanding what you can do to manipulate that rating thing is an entirely different challenge. And you're right. They do actually lay it out if you listen closely enough, but I totally miss that. They do do it halfway between the two areas at that hotel. So it's not right before the battle with Metaton. In my opinion, the dungeon in the core to me seems superfluous and long and there's also that interlude with the spider which we totally glossed over because i don't think it fits in very well with the rest of the game Eh, it's an interesting battle but not necessary for the plot yeah i I guess just real quick it's a sort of track based uh puzzle where you're jumping between different tracks to dodge incoming spiders you know you're basically jumping between strands of a web it's an interesting mechanic but like it's clear that toby just had this mechanic he wanted to use and it sort of feels shoehorned in in terms of story maybe he had a song he wanted to use that is also true it's a pretty good song that's a good as song. all of them are, all <laughs> of them are so <laughs> anyway uh once you are able to dispatch metaton by pumping the ratings and convincing him that the people of the underworld the monsters love him oh do you know who uh, the first person to call him in is uh the napster block uh metaton is actually napster blocks either brother or cousin who used to live in the um house next door and he convinced alphys to build him a body a robot body and um you you can kind of there's like uh lines to read between here like napster block talks about how his uh brother or cousin doesn't really hang out anymore since he got famous and I think um, Braddy and Caddy talk about how hearing, uh, it was like, meta, uh, they were talking about how Alpha supposedly built this robot, but then it was really weird because it was, meta, it seemed like it was Metaton's idea for himself to be built. Whoa, that is bizarre, and I did not pick up on that either. That's a pretty cool deep lore thing. This game has a lot of that, if you, uh, you know, hadn't already picked that up by our conversation thus far, but... Uh, there's there's so much in this game that isn't immediately apparent, which is probably why it's gotten such a, a huge following. But that's fascinating, Josh. That's why we have this conversation. Hey, well, you know, it also rewards multiple playthroughs, which you should do at least two on this one. Hmm, agreed. All right, so we fight Metaton, and then we arrive at New Home, because Asgore is not good at naming things. <laughs> yeah, so home was where you were with Toriel back at the beginning of the game. New home is basically a replica. It is pretty much a replica. Uh, there's a locked-off room, which is Toriel's room in the first home, and then there's a locked-off room in first home, which is Iascor's room in the second home. 
That's right. So, you know, you also get a replica of the great music that plays uh, a classy uh, acoustic guitar jam, and you start getting interrupted as you go through here, uh, if you're on a pacifist route at least. No, on the neutral one too. They tell you about how the first human fell down through the mountain, and the Toriel and Asgore were together again along with their son, Asriel, and they adopted the first human as a child. Um, but then the human died, and Asriel died too in the same day, and they kind of, um, Asgore decided to try to break through the seal and collect human souls to break through the seal and Toriel was disgusted with the plan so she left that's right so it sort of cast an additional sort of tragedy on the situation with Toriel at the beginning she's isolated from ostensibly her husband Asgore Dreamer who is the person whose new home you are in now also uh, worth noting is when you go into this when you explore around through the house you get the very the a very safe homey sensations there's a nice warm yellow color palette with the thing there's the nice guitar music playing um you go into asgore's room and you find out that he's he dresses up as santa claus every uh christmas and gives gifts to all the monsters in his kingdom and all these really nice things and then you eventually go to uh meet him because you know you have to fight him and he's in the garden and he's watering and he's like hello human would you like a cup of tea It's definitely one of those things where he doesn't immediately realize why well why you are there and when he does it immediately becomes very somber and heads into the next room and prepares to face you in front of the uh, the portal to the overworld. You definitely get the feeling that it is not something he wants to do. And as a matter of fact, um if you I think if you go through on the neutral run without um without killing many people or something like that. You also see Toriel... No, this is on the pacifist run later. We can get to that in a little bit. I have... There's something very important that we uh, missed right before you get to New Home, and that's your confrontation with Sans. Oh, that's right, that's right. Um, Right before you get to the New Home, you're in this big cathedral-looking space, and Sans comes and he judges you. He says he wouldn't judge you before he lied, um, but he um, tells you that XP, EXP, doesn't really stand for experience points, as you probably thought, like every other RPG, but it stands for execution points, and that love, or LV, doesn't, uh, it actually stands for level of violence, and it's a measure of how easy it is for you to kill other things, which the more you kill, the easier it is for you to do. Um and at this point, he just makes you feel bad for killing all the things that you've killed. 
That's right. And if you're somehow here on a genocide run, having killed all of the monsters so far, he will actually fight you here. And it is just We'll get into that later. We'll get into that later. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So... Basically, the game sort of makes its big reveal, and then you're sent on, as we had talked about, to face Asgore. And, you know, in front of the portal, as we had talked about, um, he stands waiting for you. And when you initiate combat with him, he uses his spear to destroy your uh, spare button. Mm -hmm. There is no mercy in this fight. It's a tough fight. It's a tough fight, especially if you're doing this on the pacifist on a pacifist run, and you can only get hit so many times. Uh, there are a couple of things you can do to make his attacks a little weaker. Uh, you can talk to him a few times, which lowers his attack. And then if you kept the butterscotch pie that Toriel made for you at the beginning of the game, and you eat that, that uh, he gets very nostalgic, and he also kind of loses his nerve to attack then too. Oh, I didn't know that. There's so many little Easter eggs with item usage in this game that I just never use because I always use dog salad. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, don't, if it works, don't knock it, right? That's right. Yeah, well, maybe we'll talk about the dog salad later, but suffice it to say, very powerful artifact. (laughs) Yep. So you fight as uh, you fight Asgore, a very, uh, very tough fight. Uh, but eventually, you do knock him down to just a sliver of health left, and he starts. Uh, he says, "You've won. You've beaten me, and you have a choice to fight him or spare him." Yeah, I have a quick point to make on the fact that they actually force you to attack Asgore in this fight because I think it really undercuts what the game has taught you so far. There has basically been no point in this game thus far where you need to hit that attack button. And this is the first fight where you are forced to. And not just forced to, but you you really, you have to to progress. Um, It's not hinted at. It's not foreshadowed, except for, you know, basically everything in the entire game. But uh, it just felt like slightly weird to me that they actually force you to do damage to Asgore. So in terms of a neutral run, I would say that this fight works better than as on a pacifist run, when you're like knowing that you can go through everything. In terms of hinting about it, he does destroy the mercy button, so you know that's never going to be an option. Uh, So I I feel like... But it is, because it comes back... Then it sneaks up on you at the end, which I feel like was a kind of way he was trying to get the neutral and pacifist to go through kind of the same thing, which actually isn't even necessary because the pacifist 
version of this battle goes a little differently. That's true. All right, but um, yeah, I, point taken, point taken. That was um, goes a little bit against its point when it tries to do that. Yeah, so at any at any rate, as we were talking about, you, you whittle Asgore down. He's standing there on death's door, and you can choose to spare him at this point. It, the, the option comes back miraculously. Surprise! Deus ex machina. Um, but Flowey reappears at this point, the little yellow flower from the beginning of the game, and finishes him off for you. And, you know, basically berates you for being merciful and launches you into a endgame boss fight because he has absorbed all of the other six human souls that Asgore was planning to use with yours to break yeah. the barrier. So quick aside right here, um, to break the barrier, barrier, you needed seven human souls. You, you are the eighth human to fall down into the mountain before. Uh, the first human was adopted by the royal family, made, made friends with Asriel, and then... Um, he died, and then after that point, Asgore started collecting the human souls to break through the barrier, so he had six of them collected already, and that's part of the reason he was so powerful, was he had all those souls with him. So that's right. So Flowey comes along, absorbs those souls, turns into this huge, they call it uh, Photoshop Flowey, because while all the other monsters you've seen have been kind of black and white pixel graphics, this is kind of more like, I don't know, like a kind of Donkey Kong Country style uh, sprites going on there where they're kind of 3D rendered in a world that isn't. Let's just call it ugly AF internet graphics. There we go. Like, okay. Maybe I was being charitable there. But you go through this Photoshop flowy fight which is very different than the other fights have been. And you eventually win by calling out to the six souls inside of flowy and saying help help you're not like this you can resist you can change and they agree with you and then um you are able to defeat photoshop flowy yeah it's a pretty it's a good fight it's you know it's clearly hopeless from the beginning you're continually destroyed during the course of this battle you know your little little red heart just continually breaks apart and you know he tortures you by reloading a former save and killing you again and again and again important to mention is that at this point uh flowey shows that he has his own save files and he can reload saves at will so it's another thing like how do you beat him when he can just reload a save whenever something happens Mm -hmm. and the the way to beat him is i guess by taking that power away by uh convincing those souls giving him power that you're uh, on the side of right and getting them to aid you instead. Yeah, it's, you know, classic RPG trope over there. Hey, you're, uh, you know, you call out to someone. This was done first in Earthbound, uh, if you guys have played any of that. Uh, but it's where they say, like at that end battle with uh, Gygas, Paula just prays. There's nothing else to do but just pray. And you call out to someone. And I think the last someone that gets called out to is you, the player. Um, which... We'll talk about how that plays out in this game later on. You don't call out to anyone in the flowy photo, Photoshop flowy battle, uh, but the souls themselves. But, you know, this is a pretty uh, well-understood trope in RPG circles here. Thank you. 
you defeat Photoshop Flowey, you are able to, you know, rejoin the overworld. But you eventually get a phone call from Sans, and he tells you about the state of the world, and a lot of what you get in that phone call depends on who you spared, who you saved, how you got through that game in that first run. And then, you know, your save file is there right before the end boss, and if you reload it, you're immediately called by Undyne saying she needs you to deliver a package. Oh, uh, you are only immediately called by Undyne if you have gone through the neutral run without killing anyone. So if you've been... What I had to do, because I killed Toriel the first time, I had to go back and um, replay the game, this time sparing everybody. Which, it was almost a puzzle sometimes, like with bosses like Toriel or Metaton, where you have to realize how to spare them. Uh, You can't just say, hey, we cool here. So you go, you either go through the entire game again, or you haven't killed anyone at this point anyways, and you just pick up the phone there. Uh, But then you go to Undyne's house, and you go on an Undyne date, because... She doesn't like you at first, but Papyrus stops by and says, Oh, you know, I thought she'd be up to the challenge, and Undyne's not one to resist a challenge. So she's determined to become your best friend from that point on. The house ends in flames, as it probably should for anything so anime as Undyne. Yeah, but I mean, you guys had a great date, and you both went on your own ways unhurt, as you should in the pacifist ending. Mm -hmm. But Undyne does send you a letter to... Or give you a letter to send off to Alphys over in the lab, which is, uh, it's heavily implied that uh, there are some romantic undertones to this letter. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you get to the lab and Alphys assumes the letter is from you. And so that's why you end up on a date with Alphys. In the garbage dump. <laughs> that's right. In the only place she feels comfortable, the garbage dump. Uh, <laughs> so after going into the garbage dump and uh, having a date that ends in a role play with you as uh, Undyne and her as herself uh, confessing her love for Undyne, you are interrupted uh, by Undyne, uh, awkwardly, and you are sent back to the lab where you are able to descend into the uh, hidden lab of Alphys and discover more about some of the less savory things that she did in order to help Asgore try and retrieve the human souls and get to the overworld. You learn about this power called determination, uh, which at this point, this is only a word you've heard um, during the save files, most or more or less. There's a couple of times, a couple of cinematics, your fight with Asgore, um, or whenever you come across a game over screen, as a point in fact, um, when you, do, when you come across a game over screen, Asgore tells you to stay determined. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later, too. But you, um, you learn about determination as a quality that humans have, and some have it more than others. Monsters typically don't have it because it kind of fuses, when they get too much determination, they kind of fuse into these Lovecraftian horrors. Um, There are some really creepy things you come across in the true lab. No other way to put it. Just very... Offsetting. Offsetting, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's definitely a a weird scene. And at the end of it, what what you've done is basically rallied all of the game's former bosses to your side. And you understand sort of the context of why they're doing what they're doing. And so if you reapproach Asgore at this time, they 
end up coming to your aid and stopping the fight from happening. However, that does not stop Flowey from getting the six souls and dispatching everyone here all at once. Yep, she, or Flowey, uh, Flowey kills all the monsters, uh, or absorbs their souls, let's say. Absorbs the souls of the six humans and the all the bosses you fought, all the monsters in the world who have also shown up to cheer you on and whatnot, and he becomes Azrael, the goat child of goat mom and goat dad. That's right. It's worth noting here that Azriel is just a combination of Asgore and Toriel, because once again, oh my Asgore gosh. is terrible I at naming that things. This entire time. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the beauty of this game: is you just like every time you play it and talk to someone about it, you realize something else that's ridiculous. About <laughs> <it>. <laughs> mm-hmm. But this fight is truly just sort of a psychedelic JRPG final boss fight. Um, I don't know, pixel effect fest? Mm-hmm. You, fi- you go through and you fight him. Um, again, you're not really fighting fighting him, but you're trying to save him here. And actually, you're, um, one of the buttons, I think it's the act button, changes from act to save, which is an interesting homonym because a lot of your power of you, the player, the one who has this determination. Determination is kind of this ability to not die uh, to reload a save. It's explicitly called out several times in the narrative, um, where determination means you can restart things. And um, so you, it becomes save, but not to like save your progress and reload that later, but rather to save the souls, uh, the people who are absorbed by Azrael, the monsters living inside of him. The save button you keep using this, you save all the souls, but then there's one more person to save. And this is kind of another callback to that Earthbound scene where you're trying to save Azriel himself this time. So you call out to him, you call out to his soul, you say, hey, you gotta be good here. Uh, or basically, in a nutshell, but you're trying to keep him, um, you're trying to bring him back from being this all-consuming evil thing. Yeah, and this he's he's really only trying to do this and win and keep you here because he doesn't want to see you go you as the the player character as the first human um are the only person that he's ever really been able to relate with because you both have this saving loading power that he's aware of and if you win his time with you will be over and you know diegetically speaking this is true if you win your time with this game is over so he is using all of his might to keep you from winning this game because it means he won't be able to spend any more time with you. And that's kind of heartbreaking. 
Asriel is, you know, as you go through the fight, you find out more and more that it might have been years and years since he was an actual child. Um, he was turned into Flowey later on during the plot. Um, but he's still very much a kid. Like, at the end of the game, he's... Uh, well, even just, like, the way he names his attacks, they, they're they given very metal names. Like, he's Asriel, god of hyper-death. Not just any death, but hyper-death. Asriel was, you know, he was best friends with the first human that fell down. And in the true lab, you find out that the first human's name is the same name that you put in at the beginning of the game. Uh, if you put it, I think, canonically, the character is called Kara, or Chara. Let's go with Chara. Uh, this can be another GIF gift debate. We'll go with Chara, though. Um, Chara is the first human who fell in, and that's whatever name you put in at the beginning where um, the game's asking you, hey, name the fallen human. That's not the person you're controlling the entire game. That's the first one to fall down. The person you're controlling, their actual name is Frisk. Uh, but you don't find this out till later. Uh but Chara is like best friends with Asriel over here, and Asriel is really just trying to get Chara back over with all this uh, plotting and scheming. That's right. At the end of the day, this is just someone trying to sort of bring back their friend and allow them to spend more time together. But uh, that is not the natural way of things, and that also would destroy an entire world and you know set of lives for all of these people that you've met along the way, and so you can't allow that to pass. So during the battle with Azrael, you call out to him um, enough times. You try to save him enough times, and you do. He tries to attack you, but you, your little human soul refuses to die, refuses to break. That's right. And at this point, he breaks the barrier with all of the power that he has before giving it up and back into all the souls of the people. And so you are left with all of the lives of your friends restored, and the barrier is gone. So you've got the best of both worlds here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I consider this the true ending of the game, at least. And it's the best ending. Um, there's the genocide run, which we'll get through in a minute. Uh, but this is definitely the ending the game wants you to have. In terms of the game's theme and message, this is the correct choice to do. Yeah, you get a bunch of fun credit scenes where all the monsters that you met along the way are chilling up in the overworld. Undine's on a beach. Sans and Papyrus are cruising down the highway in a car. Mm -hmm. It's great. Everyone's hopes and dreams are coming true. That's right. But then uh, our conversation is going to have to take a pivot for the macabre in the genocide version of Descending. Yes. Uh, So those of you who have played RPGs before are probably familiar with the random encounter mechanic you're walking along through the ruins or through hotland or whatever and sound effect screen change you're in a battle a monster appears uh during the genocide run what happens is if you kill enough of these monsters during the random encounters they stop showing up and the words that show up are but nobody came another call back to earthbound when an enemy would call for help which sometimes would summon another enemy for you to uh fight but other times would um it would fail to happen it would say but nobody came and that's a phrase that comes up a couple times in this game chiefly during the genocide run yeah that's right it's uh one of those situations where the game is just trying to sort of 
test your ability to withstand loneliness and misery. Um, the genocide run is not a pleasant thing. No, it isn't. Uh, I went through, I got through the papyrus fight myself, and I killed him. And then I'm like, I'm a terrible person, and I need to stop doing this. I don't think it's necessarily even possible for a sane person to make it through the genocide run after having done the pacifist run. Because you're aware of all of these characters, and I think you'd have to sort of be able to suspend all of that. Mm-hmm. to get through a genocide run i think and so you just, i mean yeah. you want to see what happens you want to see all the plot but this game really makes you feel like an <clears throat> asshole for it i didn't it. want it bad enough and i think that comes through and I, I think that's one of the key themes of this game which we'll get to later is that it's rejecting the completionist mindset um because seeing this ending is just not worth it yes uh and more ways than one we can touch on that in a bit uh, but yeah, you're going through and you're, you know, the fun hijinks you had with Papyrus and his puzzles before, when you're in genocide mode, uh, your character completely skips through all of that and just like rejects all these puzzles. And you're just going through massacring everything. Um, I think all the boss, boss battles you fight, except for two, are completely they're complete pushovers. They are like one hit kills for all of them. Um, and with the exception of Undyne, who becomes extra anime and fights back over there. And then the Sans fight too, which is something we should talk about. Uh, so there's a couple of characters in the game, Sans and Flowey, chief among them, who either have determination or, or they are aware of it. Like, Sans has some sort of quantum warping power. By determination, you mean the ability to manipulate the time flow. You know, save and load, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think one of the first things that Sans says during the, fl- the fight is that he's been monitoring the anomaly in the timelines. Or that there's, like, timelines ending left and right, and that's because of you, isn't it? So the Sans fight, super epic. Great music for that, too. fight with sans you know if you somehow end up being able to surpass this basically is the the final fight for real of the genocide run when you get to asgore he is a complete pushover for you or incredible power as well and it's revealed that you you know even flowey is not able to relate to you anymore your most dear friend oh uh one thing about this in the new home sequence when you're going through his home um you're talking to flowey at this time whereas before it was the other monsters who were coming up in a fake battle screen and telling you the story about Azrael and the first human. This time it's Flowey talking about how 
he woke up as a flower after he died and he didn't have a soul but he had determination and he could reload the save points but then after you came down your determination was stronger and he couldn't reload save points anymore and he realizes that you're Chara you're the first human that came down here yeah it's it's a trip and like once you are once you end Asgore, you also end Flowey, and basically the the game ends with <laughs> with the first the first character Chara, the first human, killing you, the player, and the game crashes. Yeah, the game crashes, and that's it. And at that point forward, even if you go back and try to get the pacifist happy ending again, it doesn't let you because the game knows. That's right. It, it, in the the ending sequence where you'd see like the character portrait of all of your best friends in the Undertale world, um, instead it shows pictures of them with big red X's over their faces. Mm-hmm. It's pretty pretty damn depressing. So during the Sands fight, there's this really interesting thing that happens. You've been this monster the entire game. You've been leveling cities. You've been genociding an entire population of creatures. And Sands is talking to you, and he knows that you've gone through a pacifist run before or something like that. But he does a reverse earthbound on you. He says... He calls out to you and he says, you know, I know there's some good left in you somewhere. I know you don't have to do this. And gives you the option to just stop and walk away and change, you know, change your ways. And I think this was very effective because there's been two points in the game where you've done this yourself before. And that's how you've progressed. Uh, That's how you've done it is you've called out in the dark to the bad person to change it but right here you are the bad person you are the person getting called out and implored to and to finish the genocide run you have to skip over that that's right it's uh it's supremely self-defeating in a way like you're you're ending this in opposition to the way that you have succeeded in the past so you're specifically contra- or contradicting your own prior motives Exactly, exactly. It's a very emotional moment. I mean, uh, I didn't get through the entire genocide run. I couldn't. But even watching the Sands fight, I was still like, I got chills down the spine. If the music isn't enough to do it for you, then the, you know, content of the actual fight and the things that will try and make you feel throughout will, will do it. So I feel like one of the biggest themes about this game was the uh, video game trope subversion. Like I mentioned before, the kind of cultural world it's talking about is video games and RPGs and their mechanics. And right from the get-go, you realize that, you know, the tagline is the RPG where no one has to die, which is very unusual for an RPG. Monsters lead these rich and interesting lives, and if you kill them, then that is removed from the interesting world, and it's a little less interesting of a place to hang out in for doing that. Um, One of the things I think it really does is reject the completionist mindset as you said earlier chara 
as it's revealed later on, both in the Sands fight and on the Endgame monologue, is not evil. Chara is not like this evil being. Chara is the sense that you have to see it all, the sense that you want to see those numbers next to your name increase, your level, your attack, your defense. You want to get those numbers higher. It's not so much... It's like the evil is a side effect of that. The fact that you empty out entire cities and um, you're killing all these people, that's only the means to the end of getting your numbers higher and of getting to go farther in the game, which is what the genocide run, I feel, is really about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, it sort of goes against the notion that character progression, as we know it in video games, needs to be limited to numbers going up on a screen. The real character progression in this game not only happens through you as the player learning about what makes this world tick, but also in the progression of all of the relationships that you build throughout the game with the different characters in it. So character progression in this game, in the pacifist run, has an entirely different meaning than it does in a typical video game. Mm -hmm. And I think the way this subverts your expectations about that is very interesting and, for me, the reason to play the game. So now that you've heard all of the spoilers... Now you know why. (laughs) Yeah, now you know why you should play this game you've hopefully already played. Um, (laughs) There's a really good anti-completionist rhetoric thing from Austin Walker, now of Waypoint, formerly of Giant Bomb, when he wrote this, uh, one of my favorite video game critics, who said, Undertale preached a sort of anti-completionist doctrine that spoke to me. If you try out some unsavory things just to see what will happen, quote unquote, it notices and calls out to you as if to say, really? Were you so determined to know everything that you'd stoop to this? It doesn't just do this as a one-off gag, but offers an entire story branch dedicated to addressing players determined to check every box on the list. And I think, you know, we talked about the genocide run. That's exactly what he's referring to there. Absolutely. It's not fun. It's not savory. It's just box ticking. At the end of the game, yeah, because um, it should be mentioned that if you play a genocide run, this is just going off of my extermination of two areas instead of the five or six they have but you will probably be spending 70 percent of your time walking through the land and waiting for things to come so you can kill them which does not sound like you're a good person when you put it like that right so if we're talking about recurring themes throughout the course of undertale we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the musical motifs and themes Yes. This game has some of the most amazing recurring motifs in a musical sense that I've ever seen in a video game, let alone like, you know, media in general. This rivals some John Williams shit right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, the game music can be very sparse and economical at times in terms of you're hearing kind of like the NES or SNES chiptune kind of uh, instrumentation. But does a very good job both in using different instruments to give different feels to it and then threading melodies and light motifs throughout the score in order to make connections, thematic or otherwise. Uh, Brian sent an extra excellent article to us by, was it Andrew Wu, I think? And- That's right, Jason Wu. Jason Wu, sorry, Jason Wu. Uh, we'll put I'll that link up- it in the show notes. We'll put that up on the website as well uh, so that you guys can take a look at that too. Uh, but it was a really good examination of just how densely packed 
the music is with different ideas and how they're connected with each other. Yeah, this game does a fantastic job, uh, even, you know, from the initial Undertale title theme, weaving that into the aspect of home for the game and calling you back to that for all of the various, you know, points where you're meant to feel at home. those that didn't recognize the $25 SAT word Josh wrote there, leitmotif, it's the idea of a recurrent theme throughout music composition associated with a person, place, or situation. And this game does that in spades. Like, every character has a recurring theme that, you know, calls to mind their characteristics and summons a particular emotion for you with that. Yeah, music in this game, fantastic stuff. Um, it's just... Stuff you can listen to over and over again. It is indeed. Um, So now that we've talked about the music, I think we can pivot into some... Three-word reviews. That's right. Um, I'll kick us off with our three-word reviews, and my three-word review for Undertale is Skeleton Dating Simulator. Because at the end of the day, what this game is really all about is forming relationships with skeletons and other weird <laughs> monsters. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some of the most endearing moments this game brings to bear uh, are of uh, the relationships you're forming with the characters in it and, you know, the excellent music that accompanies those things. Uh, my three-word review here is Hopes and Dreams, the song that plays when you're fighting Azrael Dreamer at the end of the pacifist route. Um, epic song, like it's an epic game, and it also plays into how the game is trying to get you to appreciate the monster's hopes and dreams. They're not just some small amount of experience to add up to your tally at the end, but they are monsters that have rich and interesting lives. They have varied and outlandish personalities, and the enjoyment of this game comes from getting to know them and getting to appreciate them. Absolutely. So, uh, all in all, I think if you hadn't been able to tell so far, this game's a huge thumbs up for both Josh and myself. Absolutely. You know, can't say enough about Toby Fox's creation. It's, uh, it's quite a, a thing, you know, especially for almost entirely one guy's efforts. It's really something. If you haven't played it yet, you owe it to yourself to do so. It's a quick effort. Give it a try. All right, and then I think next month we will be playing Hollow Knight, the 
kickstarted metroidvania that's right uh hollow knight metroidvania developed and published by team cherry released for um windows and and then subsequently switch playstation xbox etc in 2017 uh as you mentioned kickstarter darling and now is getting a full sequel basically off the back of those efforts so it's clearly got a, a solid fan base and uh i'm excited to see that for all of you out there i'm brian skersha i'm josh galecki Keep on gaming. So, Brian, I've heard you've played Deltarune Chapter 1. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I played Deltarune Chapter 1. What's your uh, what's your three-word review on that right now? Still good music. <laughs> it's a g- solid sophomore effort from, from Toby Fox so far. Like, he's clearly evolved the combat system quite a bit. The art has evolved leaps and bounds. The art is excellent in it um, compared to... Um, to Undertale, which, you know, didn't always excel in the art department. It wasn't about the art. No, it never was. But, um, and it's still not really, but it's better. Uh, and it's sort of like a weird alternate universe fanfic involving some of the Undertale characters is what I'm getting from it so far. Hmm. Alternate universe fanfic. I'll take it. <laughs> I, I can't quite tell if it's a direct sequel or not yet at this point. It's it's weird. You should probably just play it. It's free. All right, sounds good. Yeah.